1: Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the SEND podcast, we are joined by Stephen Schwartz. Stephen's work includes books and research papers on remote viewing, consciousness, out-of-body experiences, archaeology, anthropology, medicine, healing, creativity, social policy. He also publishes the Stephen Schwartz Report, which is a daily news service about global trends that will affect your future, So anyway, this podcast is packed full of deep mind-provoking content. We talk about so many amazing things. We talk about non-localized consciousness, near-death experiences, the psychic phenomenon, collective consciousness. And I also asked Stephen the question, what is one big question about the nature of reality that he is currently on his mind and currently asking himself? And by the way, what an answer. Something that we were not expecting. So anyway, I'm going to keep this intro short so we can get right into the meat of this one. Literally the meat of it, haha, I being the meat suit. So just before we do delve into this one, and just to let you guys know as well, me and Chris have now launched a new YouTube video show where you get to see our beautiful faces. So please head over to our YouTube channel and check that one out. And I just wanted to say as well, thank you so much for all you guys for tuning in every week and inspiring us to keep doing what we're doing. All you guys are really the reason why this podcast is so great. So thank you so much for being you. We're the channelers, but you are the source. And I just wanted to say thank you so much to all our current Patreon members who do support the podcast and are becoming a part of the Send podcast family. And as you guys know, this podcast is 100% funded by you. And as you know, we have never and never will advertise stupid products or bombarded you guys with stupid ads that just don't serve you as a human being on this planet. We take this podcast seriously, we take you seriously. And I was actually thinking about this. Just imagine being in a float tank, you're lying there in the water, you're trying to clear your mind, and a mattress ad just starts playing in the background. How insane would that be? And this podcast is a secret secret place for your body and mind. We protect that and respect that. So we're asking for your help to take this to the next level. And if you do think this is a conscious idea, please go to Patreon slash Ascend. And whatever tier you do decide to choose, you will get special reward prizes. We have a $2 reward tier, which is the price of a cup of coffee called Hidden Citizens. We have a $5 reward tier and a $10 reward tier. And one of those special rewards is a hangout where you can get together with other like-minded minds who are also Patreon members, discuss deep topics, share some ideas, just connect and have some fun and really go deep down the rabbit hole altogether and these hangouts are staged every month and we are also going to be giving away 2 signed copies of Steven's new books, The 8 Laws of Change and to have a chance of getting a signed copy you need to become a Patron by the end of the month and 2 lucky Patron members will receive a signed copy of them books, so if this does tickle your fancy please head over to our Patron page, join in our community and this can be found on the Ascend website quote go to So, anyway, this is an amazing podcast. Let's jump in with this one. Enjoy. But, anyway, um, Stephen, we're both really looking forward to having a conversation with you. And, um, like I said before as well, we, uh, you, you are one of the founders of Remote View and Research, which is really cool as well. And, um, your work is really fascinating because it crosses over to sort of meditation, um, lucid dreaming, native experiences and consciousness and things like that. And just to start this off, um, in a subject that does come up a lot in regards to your work is the idea of, which I've heard you talk about as well, is the idea of non-localized consciousness. And sort of when we do look around at the world now, there's a lot of sort of materialist um, views in regards to consciousness. I know they talk about when they say things like um, no meat, no consciousness. But what is your sort of perspective on non-localized consciousness? And just for the listeners, what does actually uh, non-localized consciousness actually mean?
2: Non-local consciousness is a concept which has been emerging in science for about, oh, since the early 80s and is i think the prevailing trend although yet not yet the dominant trend the materialist idea is that consciousness arises from psychophysical processes in the in the body that is consciousness results from some kind of biochemical bioelectrical activity in your in your the neuroanatomy your nervous system and that um, dead meat, no consciousness. The alternative, which, as I say, is, I believe, the prevailing trend, although not yet the dominant trend, really you can trace back to, I mean, it goes back into antiquity, but in modern terms, you trace it back to Max Planck, the father of, of quantum mechanics, In 1931, Planck was interviewed by the Observer newspaper, and they basically said to him, You're one of the most famous men in the world, and one of the most, particularly one of the most famous scientists. Um, What have you learned? And his response illustrates the point that I'm trying to make. And he said, Well, what I've learned is that consciousness is fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. Space-time emerges from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time. And that basic idea is that there is a continuity of consciousness. That is, consciousness exists before you were born, and it will continue after your physical organism dies. And the corollary to that is that episodically, uh, you know, from time to time you're this eternal self, what in religion they call the soul, this eternal self will periodically manifest another personality and that's what we mean when we talk about reincarnation. Not that you're coming back, but that this eternal aspect of you will manifest another personality and that that personality will, in ways we don't understand very well, have access to information arising from earlier incarnations. There's research that shows, for instance, that uh, people that die in traumatic, um, often violent automobile accident, murders, that kind of thing, Uh, who who die from those kind of violent reasons unexpectedly, um, sometimes come back literally with scar tissue or birthmarks in the place where the injury that killed them previously uh, occur. There's a book called Biology and Reincarnation done by a famous professor at the University of Virginia in the United States that covers just cases of, of that kind where they people uh, br- bring across information, and that seems to be what's coming across. Not energy or anything else, but information. You know, if you saw the movie The Matrix, yes. where you, you see the screens and the the numbers are running down, and then it morphs into reality, well, that's actually a pretty good way to think of it. We seem to be living in a universe of information which is given shape and reality by the intentioned focused consciousness of of this aspect of ourselves. And this is also the part that does things like remote viewing. This is the part that has near-death experiences. Uh, This is the part that has spiritual epiphanies. Interestingly, particularly, this is the part that has moments of genius. If you look at the world's great geniuses in the science, the arts, the humanities, if you talk to them about how did they get the idea, they'll tell you that they had a moment, the aha moment it's sometimes called, when they felt this sense of connection with a greater whole, and in that moment they saw whatever it is they were looking at. Scientists seeing physical principles, spiritual pilgrims having epiphanies, um, and remote viewers being able to describe teacups hidden in closets at great distances. So this aspect of consciousness exists outside of time and space. That's why when you ask someone to do a remote viewing, And remote viewing is just a protocol for um, doing objectively verifiable experiments where you can test this idea of non-local consciousness by getting people to describe things that they could not know or that don't even exist at the time they're describing them but will soon come to pass. For instance, a typical experiment might be, uh, Dan and Chris, I'm going to show you a picture. I'd like you to describe it for me. I'm going to show you this picture in an hour. Now, at the time that you give me your description, there actually is no target. The target is selected after you give your description and is randomly selected from a pool of such targets by a computer. So at the time that you're giving the description, nobody knows what the answer is, but there is an answer that will occur. And um, after the answer occurs, then you can see and compare your description with the actual target. And what we find in experiments is that people can do this quite reliably. Um, And it can be used for other things. I used it in archaeology to find... Cleopatra's palace, Mark Anthony's palace, the lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the the remains of one of the caravels, the little ships of Columbus's fourth voyage, um, sunken ships in the Bahamas, in California, in Jamaica. Um, It's been used by others to locate uh, Mesoamerican artifacts, Glastonbury Cathedral was reconstructed, or Glastonbury Abbey, was reconstructed in your own country by a man named Frederick Bly Bond using a variation of remote viewing. Wow. So, uh, we have a, uh, there's a considerable amount of research on this in which people routinely locate things that they shouldn't be able to know, and they do so by accessing this non-local aspect of consciousness. Because in the non-local a- a- a domain of consciousness, all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent.
1: Well, Stephen, well, what an what a opening point, by the way. And, and I was just looking at Chris there, and we're both nodding our heads, and I was just yeah. thinking in my head there, that's, I've just got to see it, I think that is one of the best opening points. Answers to, on this podcast that we may have ever had. Mm-hmm. Honestly, you went in so much detail; it was absolutely beautiful. And there's so much there to dissect, by the way, as well. And uh, I will, t- we will we'll try and get back because there's so many points you said, and that i want to try and pull, pull out. Um, but the first one, as well, I would love to touch on is when you were talking about um st- straight away when you were talking about how there's an aspect of consciousness that um, not physically based. That's what you said. I think as well that perspective and the idea of, of that aspect of conscience that is not physically based, the evidence that is coming out now is very strong and it sh- that should, like you were saying, there's loads of evidence from reincarnation, uh, so many other things and um, that should really like shift like people's perceptions in the mind to really think in a different way and um, I know for me as well, obviously in my life as well, sort of uh, around that topic of conscience as well, that's coming to the understanding in my life how I know that consciousness is not physically based I mean that's the things in my life it's really shifted my perspective and made me sort of ask a lot of very interesting questions even just to myself as well around the topic of consciousness I mean this is something I would love to ask you from that as well I mean have you ever um I mean you've been in this area for a very long time and I was actually wondering what sort of questions are you actually asking yourself now in your life in regards to sort of consciousness not being physically based and around that topic
2: well, the big question for me is, what is information? Well, wow. I mean, that sounds like a simple question. You just say, oh, well, information is something you write down with some kind of symbols. But, but the reality is, when you do a remote viewing and a person describes something, how do they get that?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What is it that they're getting? And the answer is, they get information. And so then the question is, well, what is information? I mean, where is it? When someone describes um, Cleopatra's palace, for instance, that nobody's seen for thousands of years, where do they get that information? And how do they get it? And the, the best that we the best understanding that I have anyway, is that they are accessing information. This is what uh, some people would call the akashic record. This is what other people, uh, for instance, uh, people who are familiar with the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung would call the collective unconscious. This is what uh, Germans might think of as the elementary thoughts of humanity based on Adolf Bastian's work. Or if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell and the monomyth, all of these are attempts to try to describe this informational domain which has no space or time characteristics. It's not that space or time don't matter, they're informational enrichers, but they are not limitations. We know for instance in remote viewing that it is as easy to describe something that is hidden that's in the next room as it is something around the planet. So distance doesn't matter. And we know that time doesn't matter, because people describe in as great a detail things which have been lost for thousands of years as they do something that was hidden in a closet the day before yesterday. So, once you remove time and space as limitations, you can see why phenomena like healing, for instance, we know from studies that it is possible to hold a person in therapeutic intention and have an effect on that organism. Now most of it gets discussed in things like sending energy, healing energy. You hear people talk about this all the time. But it but we know from the experimental data that it can't be energy. Because first of all, the human brain can only the entire you have about eight billion uh, neurons in your, and about eight hundred million of them are firing at any one time. Whoa. And um, it only your brain only generates enough electricity to light a little LED bulb. So there's no way that it could generate enough energy to um, describe something that was, oh, say, in Argentina from Newcastle. Uh, and how would it direct it? How could you, how would you target it? How, that, that is, you know, it's not like you have a phone number. So, you, what, the, what we're seeing in the research data is that holding intention, that the key to this whole business of accessing the non-local aspect of consciousness is to the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. That's why meditators consistently do better at tasks like remote viewing or healing than non-meditators. Because when you strip away the religious aspect of meditation and you just get down to what are the physiological results, what you discover doesn't make any difference how people, what technique people use. The key to it all is that they are able to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. And when you can do that, then you can access this non-local part of yourself. It's not coming from outside you. In fact, the whole idea of outside inside is is not correct because that's all physical thinking. When you think in terms of consciousness, what you're thinking of is this matrix of information. You can find and, and locate things because you hold intention to ask. It's like doing a Google Mm -hmm. in the not local to get the information that remote viewers got. When I say to them, I want you to describe this thing that I'm going to show you in an hour, it's as if you were doing a Google and saying, um, uh, giving some search word and uh, search target, and back comes all these hits. That, that how do they, you know how that how that happens? That same kind of process is basically what remote viewers are doing. I give them a target, and whether the target exists at that moment or only in the future or in the deep past doesn't make any difference.
0: Wow. Stephen, that's fascinating. You've really delved in so much topics, and definitely about the informational field. This, this is something that's been actually in my brain for a long time, and it's been absolutely itching at us to ask you this. Um, Stephen, is this ability to tap into this informational field something like we've always had, or like we have developed, or are we now even losing it? Uh,
2: we always have it. It's a function of being a living organism. And um, you don't get it from outside or anything. You simply open to it. Um, it's it's not about sending in signals. It's it's not electromagnetic. I did a submarine experiment back in 1977, where I put people deeply in a submarine and uh, asked them to do remote viewings while they were shielded by hundreds of feet of seawater which blocks all electromagnetic radiation, and they did just as well as they would have done if they were on the surface. And that continued the work that was done. That my, I was continuing work that had been begun by a man named Leonid Vasiliev, who was then working in, in what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. So it doesn't, the, the shielding of the seawater which shields the electromagnetic uh, radiation, didn't make any difference. So that is telling us, I think, that this aspect of consciousness is not physiologically dependent. It can be influenced in the same way that, if you can remember old cathode ray televisions, if you held a magnet near them, It made the picture go all wonky. Um, So things like uh, the geomagnetic fluctuations in the geomagnetic field of the earth itself have an effect on people's ability to do this. Um, Emotional issues have an effect on people. But the things that normally we think of as limiting um, any kind of communications space-time issues don't make any difference
0: statement that's absolutely incredible it's like it so does this tell us like we're constantly immersed in like this matrix of information all the time and like all life is interconnected
2: yes that's exactly what it's telling us we live we, the, the the cultural bias of of, of, of Western European and American <coughs> North American really in much of the world, the the bias is that uh, dominionism, you know, the earth is a kind of exploitable bank account that we were left by a, a rich uncle God, and that we can exploit it in any way we can, and it doesn't really have any effect on us. What we're learning with things like climate change, and this climate change, by the way, is I think one of the reasons that the consciousness model of reality is going to carry the day and become the dominant model because what, what we have to learn in order to deal with climate change is that all life is interconnected and interdependent not just at the physical level but also at the consciousness level in any case when we try to think about reality if we can begin to conceive of it as this information first part and that within this matrix we are just one part of the matrix. The Earth's biosphere extends many miles above our heads and miles beneath our feet. And so we just live on the Goldilocks zone, the, the surface of the planet. That's the Goldilocks zone, and the Earth itself is in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone within the solar system. I mean, if the Earth were a little further away from the sun, or tilted a little differently, or its orbit was a little different, there might not be life on Earth. So we live in this interlocking matrix, Um and, what, and once you begin to think that way, then you understand why environmentalism is so important, why something that you do in one place may have a huge effect. I mean, for instance, look at the acidification of the ocean as a result of the uh, carbon dioxide. And the, the um, uh, acidification is killing the coral and the coral produce much of the uh, of the stability of the ocean ecosystems. So these things are all interconnected, and until we begin to think that way and stop thinking, well, the Earth is just a bank account that we get to exploit any way we want. There are no consequences. We are going to be in deep trouble. Uh, that's what's. Climate change is basically the result of a worldview that said we can do whatever we want and we don't need to worry about any consequences. And what we're discovering now is that, in fact, there are big consequences and we have to change the way we think about the world and our place in it.
1: Wow, I love that as well, and there's so much in there again as well. I want to try and dissect as well, but I want to go back to a point as well before uh, Stephen as well, because um, you were talking So in, before as well in terms of um, when you were talking about uh, in terms of indiv- uh, individ- individual non localized consciousness. You would you were sort of describing individuals doing this, but it actually made me think what would actually happen if sort of um, a collective of people all become aware and sort of tapped into this potential, and it must raise a question like what could sort of a large scale group actually have on the effects of the physical world. Very good question. That's Mm -hmm. a really
2: good question. Mm -hmm. And, happily, we have some data. Um, uh, Roger Nelson at Princeton in the United States, Princeton University in New Jersey, uh, was part of the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Group, and they were doing experiments in which they were asking individuals to see if they could affect through consciousness alone the activity of random number generators now random number generators are gadgets little gadgets that are specifically designed to be productive of non of, of random numbers i mean they're designed specifically to only be random So they put out, oh, sometimes they're based on nuclear isotopes, where the particles that the isotopes release are random. Sometimes they're based on generating numbers. So the number, the sequences of the numbers are completely random. I mean, they're specifically designed to be random. And theoretically, nothing should be able to stop them from being random. And yet the Princeton Group found that when individuals held intention-focused awareness, that they could affect the performance of the random number generators, which ought to be impossible. And Roger Nelson, who was the laboratory manager there, a a rather brilliant psychologist, he asked the, the, the next question, and that was, if this is what happens randomly in the laboratory what would happen if a whole group of people were focused on something? What would that effect be? And so he put random number generators all over the planet all recording 24-7, 365 and recording their data and sending it back and what he discovered was that when an event occurs which coalesces the intentioned awareness of large numbers of people, like the death of Princess Diana or a tsunami in Japan or Nelson Mandela's funeral or the Olympic uh, uh, inaugurating games, when something happens that coalesces the attention of millions of people in, particularly in an emotional state what he discovered was his random number generators all over the planet all went non-random yeah. Now that ought to be impossible and yet it happened again and again and again and the odds of it happening by chance are now better are now better than one in a hundred billion where one in 20 would be significant so this is a highly significant, regular uh, uh, phenomena, and what it's telling us is literally consciousness is manipulating reality. Now, another set of experiments, I did an experiment where I had, for instance, where I had people um, doing healing, and while they were doing healing, they had little sealed bottles of very, very pure water, so pure that I had the water made from the from gases, you know, water is H2O, two hydrogen, one oxygen, and um, I had this ultra-pure water. I mean, it would have been dangerous to drink it in these little glass bottles, and they they were strapped to the hands of the healers while they were doing their healing, and we used a technique called infrared spectrophotometry to measure where you get a graph of the molecular structure of the water. And what we discovered was that the water that had been exposed to healing had a different structure than the water that than control water, water that was exactly the same in the same bottles, but that was not used in the experiments. I did another experiment where I took a bottle of wine, and I had a I had a about a two pound chunk of of quartz crystal. And I had a two-pound chunk of glass, same size roughly, and, and um, just a slab of gr- a glass. And I had uh, people focus their intention on the quartz crystal, but not on the glass. Nobody paid any attention to the glass. And then I had tubing that was wrapped around the crystal and the glass with a funnel at the top and a, a valve at the bottom. And I took the bottle of wine and I poured half the wine through the tubing that was around the crystal that had been the focus of therapeutic contention. And the other half of the wine I poured down the glass, uh, the tubing that was around the glass that had been the control that nobody paid any attention to. And then I had people who didn't know anything about the backstory of what had happened. I I poured them. uh, I said, I'm doing a test on wines. And I, I, poured, I, they took a drink of the wine that had gone around the crystal and then a drink of the wine that had been around the glass. And they, to a highly significant degree, reported that the wine that had gone around the crystal that had been the focus of therapeutic intention, they perceived as being of higher quality, a better tasting uh, more robust. I mean, all the things people say about wine. Dean Radin at the Institute for Noetic Sciences, of, of Noetic Sciences, did a series of experiments where he took chocolate bars and he broke them in two and he had a group of Buddhist monks focus their attention on one of the parts of the chocolate and, and the other part, the control part, is... Um, nothing happened to that and then he had people eat the chocolate and uh, a piece of the treated chocolate and a piece of the controlled chocolate and again to a significant degree they reported the the control chocolate as being a better tasting or, uh, or uh, more delicious or whatever and then he did the same thing with uh, he took a bunch of tea, tea leaves he had the Buddhist monks focus on the some of the tea leaves, but the other control group of tea leaves, exactly the same. Nothing happened. And then he made tea out of them and asked people to drink the tea. Now, the interesting thing here, Dan and Chris, that the key point to keep in touch with is that nothing changes chemically in the water or the wine or the or the tea. There's no chemical change. It's exactly the same. So what's happening is you are changing people's perception of the qualities of the, the tea, the chocolate, the wine. There's no chemical change, and yet people perceive them as being different. Why does that happen? The answer, I think, is because the tea has been informationally enriched, or the chocolate or the wine with the intention of the people who are doing the who are sending the uh, not sending uh, who are uh, holding the intention wow uh and so the change is occurring in the non local because there's no change at the chemical level
0: wow that's so deep that's so powerful as well uh Actually Stephen when you um, we were talking before about like large scale group um, groups having like these effects on the physical world we actually it's very interesting because we actually had Roger Nelson on the podcast, and he's a very fascinating guy so yeah St- Stephen, um it, like it all feels like all throughout history like it seems to me that there's been like these global shifts in consciousness, and as like we were talking about before it's like it, it is a like the whole planet is all connected to like this matrix of life. Do you think the shift or a rise in consciousness is rising spontaneously, or is it like being stimulated by something? Um,
2: it it's a function of getting um, coherence. When you get a, when some event occurs that creates a high coherence of awareness, you you know, like Princess Diana's death. Where the whole world suddenly is fixated on something—that's all the news talks about. Um, for instance, the what happened in Paris or what happened in Manchester. I'm sure I haven't talked to Roger, so I don't know whether—I don't know what the the number gener- his random number generators did, but I would suspect with this Manchester thing. These, these sort of horrible events that just catalyze everybody's consciousness, I suspect that the, the random number generators probably went non-random because suddenly you get a whole bunch of people who are focused very intently. The emotional co- component is important, that there's a strong emotional component. That's That sort of drives it. And where this energy focuses where this awareness, not energy, where this awareness focuses in, there's some kind of shift in, in the informational structure of reality, and that's what causes the random number generators to go non-random. And so this sort of thing is going on, and if you look at it historically, you can see periods of history where something very unusual happened over a very short space of time. For instance, historians talk about what's called the Axial Age. A-X-I-A-L Axial. And um, between the 8th and 2nd centuries BCE and during that time, much of the intellectual development of the human race changed. All of the Pre-Christian monotheistic religions virtually all come into existence within that little period of time historically. Really, gets down to about 200 years, and and the list of people that are involved with that is enormous. I mean, it's uh, I, people would be surprised that Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism. Um, um, deutero Isaiah Judaism, um, the development of democracy in Athens, all of that occurs within a space of a couple hundred years. There was a shift of consciousness. And I think we may be going through another shift of consciousness as people confront the reality that, that all life on the planet is interconnected and interdependent, And that the well-being of the planet um, is largely determined by activities of individuals. So then the question is, well, what can individuals do to bring about change? And the answer is what I call the quotidian choice. For instance, the, the people who listen to your podcast, I don't know how many that is, But it doesn't really matter. The people who listen to your podcast, if they will all do what I'm about to describe, they can change the course of history for the United Kingdom and indeed the world. Now you say, oh, that can't possibly be true. How can a bunch of blokes that are, you know, listening to a podcast change the world? Well, the answer is they can. And um, I wrote a book about it called The Eight Laws of Change. Anyway, here's, all, here's what you have to do. Every day, you make hundreds and hundreds of little decisions. They're called quotidian choices. Quotidian means daily, mundane, ordinary, regular. So every day, you go to the store, you buy uh, toothpaste, you buy cat food, you buy uh uh toilet paper, you buy a soft drink, whatever. Well, that choice is actually a kind of voting. You're making a vote. And so the first part of doing this is you must become aware that you're making choices. Most people aren't aware that they're making these choices all day long. They don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, you buy the toothpaste your mother bought. Or your girlfriend bought, your grandmother bought. So, uh, first you become aware that you're making choices. Second, you consistently choose the choice, the option that is the most compassionate and life-affirming and fostering of well-being. Now, none of the choices may be great choices. But one of them always is more compassionate, more life-affirming, and more fostering of well-being than the others, even if none of them are good. One of them is always better. And so if you will consistently choose the choice that is the most life-affirming, compassionate, and fostering of well-being, and you will consistently do that and tell 10 of your friends that that's what you're doing as a discipline and you invite them to join you and in turn to ask 10 of their friends, well, pretty soon, just do the math. If you started with a 1,000 people, then you'd have 10,000 new people. That'd be 11,000. Then you'd have 100,000 more, actually, because of the initial. You'd have 110,000 and then you'd have uh, uh, you know, ten thousand, then a hundred thousand, then a million, then ten million. Well, you can see very quickly that millions of people could start just because a thousand people that listen to your podcast yeah. make the decision to choose the compassionate, life affirming choice as a discipline consistently. And we know from other research that when 10% of any group of people, whether it's a nation or a church group or a Boy Scout troop or a class, when 10% shift in consciousness, the whole cohort shifts as well. So the thousand people we start with listening to your podcast, or maybe it's 10,000 people, or maybe it's a hundred, doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, You just see how it grows. And so the people find it hard to believe this could happen. This is how India got its independence. This is what Gandhi figured out and how he was able to get independence for India, not because he forced Britain to leave India, but because they chose to leave India. And so he achieved independence without a war. Even the Americans couldn't do that.
1: Oh, I love, I love that by the way, as well. That was uh, another great point, as well. And as well, before Stephen, as well, when you're talking about these sort of the sense of these global shifts in consciousness, it was actually making me like, propose a question at myself. there, It seems to me that we and our core identity could actually sort of be the universe coming to know itself. And I mean, I don't know if you, I would love to see your thoughts on this. I mean, could the evolution of consciousness actually be in the relation to sort of a cosmic process? And maybe the universe is actually gradually waking up and we are actually a part of the larger cosmic process?
2: We are part of a larger, Mm -hmm. we are all interconnected and interdependent. There is a, we are part of a larger unity. Mm -hmm. And when you align yourself with the part that is compassionate and life-affirming, then, and you can look at that, you can see this expressed in almost every religion in the world. The idea of interconnectedness, a single unity and uh, you know that Jesus says you must love God and love your fellow, and in that is the whole of the law and the prophets. The Buddha talks about the compassionate way. Uh, you know, you see it in Hinduism, you see it in you see it in all the world's religions, because all of the religions are man-made. The the dogmas are are man-made, but All religion starts because one individual has a non-local consciousness experience. And if the person is charismatic and they talk about what their experience was and other people hear them and then they coalesce around them and then they start writing commentaries on their teachings, those become the scriptures and um, the dogmas and then priesthoods arise. But when you get down to the short strokes on this thing, What you're really dealing with is one individual who has a non-local consciousness experience and who talks about it and impresses other people. And so it goes from the individual to the social. And that's how you can produce social change without having armies or wealth or official position. How ordinary people can create a change which alters the entire structure of the world there is no force on earth more powerful than the collective intention of a large group of people
1: well I love that by the way as well and um, when you were saying all that as well I was actually reading somewhere there a few weeks ago and it was a German amphibious called uh, Koch I think he's called but he was talking about backing on what you were saying basically that the entire sort of cosmos is immersed with sentences he talks about how we're actually surrounded and immersed in the consciousness and he was talking about how it's in the air we breathe in the soil in the bacteria in our bodies as well just exactly what you were saying and he was, but what I thought was beautiful, he actually was talking about how the universe is this constant spreading web of consciousness. That's what he was calling it, which I thought was really beautiful. And then um, if we do start to look at the planet now, we are start to definitely leaning towards that way. Like we're now beginning more in- interconnected with our technology and things like that. And if we do, I was actually thinking about this, and me and Chris were talking about this. But if we actually do start to like avoid a natural disaster in the future, God knows what will come of consciousness. I mean, have you ever thought? What I was, I'd love to ask you this. I mean. Do you act? What do you actually could think could come of consciousness in the in the future? And what do you actually think is the purpose of consciousness? Well, the purpose of consciousness is that it
2: um, it is the fundamental. We are we are part of a great unity. Mm-hmm. Now, why consciousness exists, I can't answer that question. Yeah, million dollar. <laughs> I I don't know the answer to that question, but. What it the model of 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 all that is, to me, based on the research i don't I don't have any particular religious or philosophical you know i I don't have any bias about that. Mm-hmm. I just look at data. I'm a data person,
1: yeah, I respect that like that.
2: yeah, and what the data is telling us is that consciousness is a fundamental, just as Plunk said and that we manipulate reality by manipulating information and that not only we can do that not only physically but we can also do it literally by the consciousness that we hold about something that's what the global consciousness project Roger Nelson was doing that's that's what that is those experiments are telling us is that literally the consciousness that people hold about something changes the structure of reality oh. or the experiment I did with wine and water or that Dean Raden did with chocolate and tea. We have the power to change the world and it has nothing to do with how much money you've got or what official position you've got or um, you know whether you have an army because When you have a large enough collective of people who shift in consciousness things change. Look at the Soviet Union, for instance. What brought the Soviet Union to the end? And The answer to that question, and I was there, is that uh, the consciousness of Russians changed and they rejected communism, a sufficiently large percentage of them did that the system literally could not continue.
1: Well, I love that, by the way, as well. And before as well, uh, Stephen, as well, when you were talking about, him, um, you mentioned this before as well. I think it's like you mentioned it in that point as well. But you definitely mentioned it before when you were talking about how consciousness is um, manipulating matter, which I thought was really fascinating. I mean, I was actually thinking, it could it actually be that? I was thinking in my head could it actually be that consciousness is actually sort of using our, um, like our meat suits in order to evolve because it's very interesting to me because this this theory as well I read this was also backed up in um, the book as well um, The Immortal Mind by Irvin Lozanzo I know you're familiar with his work as well but also Anthony Peake wrote that as well but it's really interesting to me because I mean have you ever thought about that is I mean is consciousness actually sort of just using our meat suits in order to con- continuously evolve itself
2: I don't know the answer to that mm-hmm. Um, uh, what the reincarnation research se- seems to suggest is that incarnations are explorations of choice that we make, and that um, we se- when you make a choice, you set in motion a pattern, and that pattern. If it is disruptive and non-life affirming, gets played out again and again. But that when you make choices that further open your consciousness, that you move into greater harmony with the unit, with the, this great unity. I think that's what I, th- I think that's what people mean when they talk about karma what they're really saying, karma it really means information patterns. That you have an information pattern that you are trying to understand and bring into harmony. And, and so you keep facing certain situations until you make a choice or choices that bring you into harmony. And so almost all religions, if you think about it, Are really about suggesting to people ways in which they can come into harmony with the great unity. And and what is behind the great unity? I have no idea.
1: Yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, that's certainly something we're going to have to be uh, exploring about more and more. (laughs) Stephen, sorry, Stephen, honestly, I'm actually blessed that you've actually given us knowledge after knowledge information after information maybe you yourself are actually the embodiment of consciousness just giving us all this information itself <laughs> 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 um but i see thank you so much for being a part on the podcast um, me and i mean so appreciate uh, you
1: guys do well i hope you prosper and so you have a great day yeah you too thank you Thanks so much for checking this one out. It was such an honour to dig into the mind of Stephen Schwartz. And if you guys do want to delve further into this man's mind, please check out his books, The Eight Laws of Change, or open up, the, open up to the infinite. It's stephenschwartz.com. And we're also going to be giving away two signed copies of Stephen's new books, The Eight Laws of Change. And to have a chance of getting a signed copy, you need to become a patron by the end of the month. And two lucky patron members will receive signed copy and i just want to say thank you so much to all you guys for tuning in every week and inspiring us to keep doing what we're doing all you guys are really the reason why this podcast is so great so thank you so much for being you we are the channelers but you are the source and i just want to say thank you so much to all our current patreon members who do support the podcast and becoming a part of the send podcast family as you know this podcast is 100 funded by you so thank you and if you do want to become a patreon and support the podcast go to patreon slash ascend anyway thanks so much for listening to the podcast we'll catch you next week keep seeking everyone peace